You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 40, in which we slide back to the 60s to see Daredevil don the red costume for the first time and take on the Submariner. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show covering Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This week, we leave the Frank Miller era of Daredevil and reset the clock to look at some classic Daredevil tales once again. And I know the obvious question that would be on your mind. Why would we stop before the last leg of the Frank Miller run and Born Again? The simple answer is timing. The Frank Miller run was originally slated to last through the end of 2014, and then my plan was to then reset the clock and dive back into some of this older material. However, with the hiatus, that would have pushed the Frank Miller run way into 2015, and that lost a little bit of the charm, at least for me. And then there's this. Before starting that late 70s, early 80s run of Frank Miller Daredevil comics, there were a total of nine episodes covering any earlier material. And that was part of the original plan, because the Miller stuff was on the docket for all of 2014. And what I felt, though, was that it kind of gave short shrift to the good, the bad, and, well, the downright ugly of classic Daredevil stories. So, when returning to this show, one of the first things I decided was to bring it back to the slightly more random selection bits. I needed some Gene Colan in my life, and John Romita, and Stiltman. Yes, Stiltman, he'll be around next week. In doing a show about one character, it's easy to get into a rut, which is why I never committed and never will commit to doing every issue of Daredevil ever. And sometimes you just have to be open to places that your muse takes you. So, to set your expectations for what's to come, the plan is to pull a ton of Daredevil issues and appearances from his debut up to the Frank Miller run, and cover those selections in chronological order. What we do by doing that is create some coverage that, including those original nine issues, is a bit haphazard, however that was and is the premise of the show. But we do have that high watermark in terms of where we are heading, and where we will progress from. I'll be honest with you, the format remains pretty simple, there's nothing changing on that. I'm going to cover an issue of Daredevil each week. So the next logical question is... When will we make our way back to the Frank Miller material? I don't have an exact date, but I have that projected to be perhaps the end of 2015, or maybe early 2016, somewhere in there. Just slate that under the TBD, to be determined. But this week, we pick up with an issue that immediately follows the first episode of this show, Issue 7, the debut of the Red Costume. It also includes Daredevil going up against one of the very first Marvel characters ever, Prince Namor the Submariner, and the Submariner shares a creator with Daredevil in the form of Bill Everett. Everett created Namor for a proposed comic magazine called Motion Picture Funnies Weekly, and derived the name of Namor by spelling Roman backwards. Confession, I didn't pick up on that until only a few years ago. 
But Namor has usually flown kind of right under my radar in terms of characters, so it wouldn't have been right in front of my face. The original Submariner story was an eight-page black-and-white tale that was sold to Timely Comics when motion picture funnies failed to materialize. It was expanded to 12 pages, with color added to appear in the very first comic offering from Timely, Marvel Comics No. 1, in August of 1939. Along with Namor, that comic introduced the Human Torch. And I mean the original Human Torch. An artificial life form that combusted. The Angel, which was a costume detective, Western hero The Masked Raider, and a jungle terror strip, and the original iteration of Kazar, who was a Tarzan-like pulp hero. Submariner appeared in the third story of the issue. Within the first four pages of that strip, he brutally kills two unfortunate divers. In his defense, he did not know that the diving suits held people. He thought they were robots. We're then treated to his origin, which is thus when an icebreaker ship called the Oracle arrived in the Antarctic, the city of Atlantis. Below the surface was pretty much decimated by the blasts from above. The city's princess, Fen, went to the surface as a spy, where she met the ship's captain and the two fell in love. They married in their own private ceremony, but the Atlanteans got a little restless. They went to the surface to reclaim the princess and they killed all men aboard the ship. So with that setup, Namor receives his mission to destroy surface dwellers as only he can with his great strength and winged feet that grant him flight. Now, I never understood where and why the winged feet factored into this genetic mutation, as neither humans nor Atlanteans have winged feet. But flight is a cool power to have, and the wings look pretty cool, so I let it slide. The story wraps with Namor taking his cousin, Lady Dorma, with him to the surface where he attacks a lighthouse and steals a plane. The next issue, retitled Marvel Mystery Comics, took Namor to New York, where he promptly killed a police officer. Suffice it to say, he is more villain than hero, though he begrudgingly becomes sort of an anti-hero as he helps fight off Nazis on the surface world. Along with Human Torch and shortly thereafter Captain America, Namor became one of the three big guns of the proto-Marvel Universe. It's that popularity that allowed him to re-enter the Marvel Universe proper after the Golden Age led to most of those heroes fading away. Namor reappeared in Fantastic Four number 4 when Johnny Storm, the second iteration of the Human Torch, found Namor as an amnesiac in a homeless shelter. Torch helps revive Namor's memories by throwing him into the water. But when Namor finds his home now destroyed by underwater nuclear testing, well, the Atlantean Prince gets pissed off. This puts him in a position to be a great Fantastic Four foil even though he is constantly repelled both in his attacks against humans and his advances on Sue Storm. Submariner made several notable guest appearances after his return, including Fantastic Four number 6, where he teams with Doctor Doom to shoot the Baxter Building into space, and Avengers number 3, where he teams with the Hulk to take on, well, the Avengers, a fight that appropriately positioned Earth's Mightiest Heroes to discover fellow Golden Age hero Captain America. Namor even took on the X-Men in issue 6 of their book, teaming momentarily with Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. But something relevant happened in Fantastic Four Annual 1. Namor found his people, and they were resettled in another location, and that issue opens up with him retaking his throne. That story brought back Lady Dorma and introduced the scheming warlord Krang, who hungered to take the throne for himself. Namor once again made an attack on the surface world, this time with his army, but he was defeated again and driven back to the deep to stew over his loss. 
which is precisely the position that we find the first mutant in at the beginning of this week's issue. So that's where we will pick up with Daredevil number 7 right after this podcast promo break. Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. And for Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. We've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Balance stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. All right, we are back to cover Daredevil number seven. That was the April 1965 issue, which had a cover by Wally Wood. The cover shows Daredevil and his new red duds deep in a murky seabed, reeling from a mighty blow delivered by the Submariner. And a newspaper declares Daredevil battles Submariner. The copy promises this epic doesn't need any hard sell. It's one of Marvel's greatest. The biggest drawback to looking at this cover on Marvel Digital is the recoloring. This was intentionally murky backgrounds, and it gets brightened up, which ruins a really good effect of an ambiguous background seabed. Luckily, this very issue is hanging on my wall, so I can see the dark, muted undersea effect, which makes the fairly sparse background make sense. It has context of being deep underwater, where it is dark and you see random shapes. The characters are oddly posed, since Daredevil is kind of reeling back from what looks like a bitch slap, Either that or Namor is staring down Daredevil's junk. I'm not sure which is most inappropriate for a children's comic. The newspaper in the foreground actually reports the battle that we are seeing. How can that happen? How can a newspaper from the next day be in the depth of the water unless... Oh, well, clearly that's the only reasonable explanation. There's also an ad for the MMMS, a.k.a. the Merry Marvel Marching Society, which was the official fan club of the Marvel Universe, one of the hallmarks of Marvel being kind of a club atmosphere. And most importantly, Daredevil's new duds aren't even teased, we just get the full-on reveal on the cover, even though it's not pointed out. Daredevil also wears his new duds as he poses with his arms crossed, looking authoritative in the character icon box in the upper left-hand corner. The story inside is In Mortal Combat with Submariner, written by Stan Lee with art by Wally Wood and letters by Artie Simic. This has been reprinted a number of times. In Marvel Superheroes number 27, there's a Marvel Treasury special number 1 from 1975, the very best of Marvel Comics trade paperback, Marvel Masterworks Volume 7 Daredevil Volume 1 hardcover, also Marvel Masterworks Volume 32 Submariner Volume 1 hardcover, Essential Daredevil Volume 1 Trade Paperback, Marvel Visionary Stanley Hardcover, and digitally you can get that through the Marvel app, Marvel Digital Unlimited, and Comixology. In his newly re-established Atlantean Kingdom, Namor, the Submariner, sits on his throne with his fiancée, Lady Dorma, at his side. 
The general of his Atlantean army, Warlord Krang, approaches the throne and kneels. Krang asks his king how much longer their people will be denied their rightful place on the surface world and points out that Namor's subjects grow restless. Namor states that they will not take the surface world by force. Nobody but Krang is looking for more bloodshed and violence. But perhaps another channel, through the legal system of the surface world, will provide a path to their rightful heritage. So even knowing that Krang is plotting to take the throne of Atlantis and gain the hand of Lady Dorma, Namor heads to the surface to try and exercise proper legal channels. Alright, let's stop the story there for just a moment. With the title page, not only do we get a regal-looking Namor on his pimp-tastic throne, but we get a little icon of Daredevil in the upper left-hand corner. The icon shows Daredevil's head, with his own logo blocking his face, which is awkward, but his shadow is cast in the background. Kind of cool to look at. This will evolve a little bit further as we go forward. As far as Namor, what we are dealing with is a Namor in the midst of change. Since his return in the Silver Age, Namor has been acting on really kind of a righteous anger. After all, until recently he thought his home and his people destroyed by careless nuclear testing. So wouldn't you be mad at that? The excuse before the Silver Age was, you know, kind of a sad misunderstanding. Atlantis had their first interaction with the surface world when they were bombed by it. Now sure, it was an accident. The Oracle didn't know that Atlantis was below them, they didn't know that Atlantis existed. But when a bombing is your first connection, it kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth, and Namor's mission was not just vengeance, but also kind of a bit of species preservation in a way. And it should be noted that the destruction of the original Atlantis was not just the fear of the bomb, which would have been popular in the 60s, but it also served as a bit of an ecological message about carelessly abusing our waters and the sea life within it, which is kind of progressive for the time, so kudos. Beyond the past, Namor is working on a new set of rules. He's a leader now. He has people to think of, the overall good of those people. But with that comes political pressure to move the people of Atlantis forward. But Namor has his head on a bit straighter. He's tried the war route. He has failed. It's time for a new path. However, let's be honest. Diplomacy is not Namor's strong suit. It's kind of a muscle he hasn't flexed yet. However, that political pressure comes from the warlord Krang, who wants the throne, and Lady Dorma, who he was engaged to until Namor came back. Now, let me address that, because I know what you're thinking. Originally, as I mentioned, Dorma was Namor's cousin, but that has been retconned, so she can be a love interest. So, we have political intrigue, we have a love triangle, and you know, if you really want to factor in Sue and Reed, suddenly we have a love pentagon because somehow superheroes have love triangles that are rougher than the rest of us. Here's the problem, having done a little bit of research in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Atlantis has no claim to the surface world. See, Atlantis, in the Marvel Universe, has a very storied history, including Celestials, the alien deviants, but that part's not important. Ultimately, Atlantis was a continent. Specifically, we are seeing the capital city of that continent, and that continent sank. Now, it remained intact because the people of that city had fortified the foundations. And then, years later, the city was discovered by a race of creatures known as Homo Mermanus. The important thing is, there is no origin point for the species. They just exist. They're not really evolution. They're not somebody that the Celestials put on there. They're just nature. But they took over the city after the spirit of a dead king urged them to, 
and basically the current inhabitants of the city, and in this case it's the rebuilt version as well as the one before it, are squatters. This is a race of people who actually had no interaction with the surface world until the oracle showed up in the 20th century. How do they see any connection or claim to the surface world, and again, why would they want to? When I see Namor traveling by turtle, by turtle! You can have your souped up car, but I'm sorry, nothing screams straight up playa like turtle water skiing. Either way, Namor is heading to the surface world to work through the legal channels. And again, I've already debunked his theory, but if that doesn't scream great setup, I don't know what would. So now that we have the setup out of the way, let's see what wackiness will ensue when Namor hits New York. Namor arrives on the surface where he walks down the streets of New York right to the office building that houses the law offices of Nelson and Murdoch. Namor busts through the building's revolving door and then through the elevator doors, yanking the elevator down to the first floor. He chooses, at random, Nelson and Murdoch to help him with his plight and then bashes down their door too. It's a pattern. Matt and Foggy are sympathetic, but Matt tries to explain that there's no existing legal precedent nor shared legal system to process the request. This irritates Namor, but Foggy re-explains it and it clicks for Namor. So Namor tries another approach. He'll terrorize the surface, forcing the law to take him into court to hear his case. And Namor bursts through the wall to start his initiative immediately. Matt decides that he needs to stop Namor and suits up in his new red duds and hitches a ride on a small plane's landing gear. He drops down to where the US Army is trying to take on the Submariner and uses physical force to push Namor back into the water. While Daredevil's intentions are to calm Namor down, he's surprised when Namor drags him right into the deep. Unprepared for the dunk, Daredevil finds himself outmatched, but Namor, respecting Daredevil's courage, launches the man without fear back to the surface. As Daredevil recovers, Namor rises to the surface as well and turns himself in to face the legal system. However, Namor takes umbrage with the chains they snap on his wrists. Now in custody and facing court, Namor calls in a request for representation to Nelson and Murdoch. Alright, let's break right there. Who doesn't dig the fact that Namor is so confident with himself he can casually walk down the streets of New York in nothing but a Speedo? Now, I don't like Speedos, I don't understand them, but I'm going to say this and I mean it. That's some machismo. Now, sure, people are fleeing from him, but many probably had some earlier run-in with him. They probably remember almost getting killed by a giant seashell or something, maybe a vicious halibut, I don't know. If you were holding out hope of any solid diplomacy skills, they should be dashed when he smashes the revolving door in elevator Hulk style. If he didn't need a lawyer before, he sure will now that those poor people have broken bones on the elevator. And for a leader of many, it concerns me that he decides that any lawyer will do for this case. What if he got Todd Milborn, just moved to New York from Sheboygan, Wisconsin, to practice tax law? That probably wouldn't have helped. However, a good patent lawyer might be in order. Now here's my thought process, and I'm being serious again. Foggy states, in the issue, that he specializes in corporation law and civil courts procedure. Stick with me on this, I'm no legal expert. But wouldn't that have come in pretty handy with this particular case? I don't know. It seems logical to me. Now, Matt's trying to explain a lack of a case, the one that I kind of described, and this manages to piss Namor off a bit, but somehow, when Foggy reiterates it, admittedly more respectfully, Namor gets it. However, 
Foggy passes the buck to Matt later in the issue, and it never occurs to him to present Atlantis as a corporation or launching a civil case that never comes into his head. Foggy totally misses the boat. This could have been a career-making case if he had used his old noggin. Foggy had Namor's attention. Now he's using force. You blew it, Franklin Nelson. And we come to a seminal moment. Daredevil dons the red costume. There's no fanfare, it's just casually mentioning that he's been working on the new suit. The in-story reasoning for the new suit? He wanted it to be more comfortable and more distinctive. There's kind of a logic behind that. I think that's fair enough. Now, I've heard Stan Lee talk about the process of redesigning Daredevil, and he flippantly says he just randomly chose red. However, looking at the excellent book by Les Daniels' Marvel Five Decades of the World's Greatest Comics, we are treated to some Wallywood design sketches. Stan may have made an arbitrary decision, sure, but Wood put a lot of thought into the suit and even more into the Billy Club, and I'll be coming back to the Billy Club in depth next week. But Red immediately made sense for a devil-themed costume. It's so obvious until I realized, well, it's really not, is it? Now, assuming that the devil is the Judeo-Christian personification of evil, the religious texts never describe Satan or Lucifer as being red. They never describe the devil or Lucifer as looking anything like we picture the devil. So where did the cliched horns, red skin, and pointed tail come from? Those were mostly from pagan influences like the god Pan, who was a satyr, man on the top half, goat on the bottom, kind of like the mullet of the man-animal hybrid kingdom. And it also draws from the idea of fire and flames associated with the devil. So while the popularized version of the devil fits the costume's theme, it has no basis in Judeo-Christian tradition. I remember Irredeemable Shag telling the story about being scared that the pastor visiting his house was going to find a comic with the word devil in it and a man in a horn costume. However, it turns out the devil in the pastor's book, The Bible, really wouldn't have fit the same scheme. So, young Shag, if I could reach back through the annals of time and speak to you, fear not, young man, fear not. So what is Daredevil's first act in his new costume? Well, he uses a large television antenna. Yes, remember those? but he uses it to fling himself into the air and grab a low-flying plane. Yes, this is absolutely ridiculous. But I give it a pass because it's fun, and it fits his swashbuckling nature. If there's one thing I'm probably guiltiest of, it's giving ridiculous stuff a pass because it's fun. But you know what? Sue me. If it's dumb and it still makes me smile, it gets a pass. Now, that brings up another topic. As Daredevil dives down from the plane to grab a spotlight wire, he passes a subtly placed Mary Marvel Marching Society sign. To tell you a little bit more about this club and how it ties in with Wally Wood, for just a dollar, your membership got you a welcoming letter, a membership card, a scratch pad, a sticker, a pin back button, and a one-sided record called The Voices of Marvel. This featured Wally Wood himself in a speaking appearance. Let's listen to that for just one moment. Oh, look who just came in. Kid Daredevil himself, Wally Wood. Is that a tape recorder, Flo? You know I'm afraid to talk into these machines. I can never think of anything to say. I'm not a big talker. I shut up like a clam. I get struck dumb. My mind goes blank. Okay, okay, okay. Forget it. Boy. I'd hate to hear you when you feel like talking. Wood's Daredevil, even in the red costume, is, I guess in a word, puffy. And the horns don't quite align right. However, I'm judging Wood completely unfairly against Gene Colan. 
though Wood doesn't quite show a full use of shadows for definition on Daredevil, he was the first person to have that problem with this design, and he's still able to pull it off. I think given more time, I think Wood would have further refined the book, because his action shots are superb. Namor lunges at Daredevil and we get this concussive result on a door, with Daredevil's reflexes rescuing him from danger. And this proves just how fast Daredevil really is. His reflexes are sharp, his perception just sharpens him to near superhuman effectiveness. Now, the digital coloring rendered the cover pretty ineffective. However, internally, it makes the underwater scenes come off as more vibrant. Daredevil stands out magnificently against the murk and sludginess of the depths. But the note I really want to make here is, Daredevil really believes that his goose is cooked. To Daredevil's way of thinking, Namor has no regard for human life and he has the advantage over Matt. This judgment is only a little harsh. I mean, given context, Namor was known for violently attacking the surface world, and there had to be casualties to that. I would expect the Matt Murdock we know to hope for more from Namor. But Matt isn't off base for thinking this. But by being more vulnerable and more brave than the other opponents Namor has faced, Matt has earned the Sea King's respect, and Namor acts on his internal nobility. I still found myself a little disappointed in Matt, who should have relied on his instincts that told him that Namor is an honorable, if disgruntled, man, something Matt even references in their first meeting. But Matt will get a second chance, as Namor needs a lawyer, and Foggy throws Matt under the bus, despite those specialties I mention. So let's move to the courtroom where the trial of Namor is about to begin. Namor's day in court begins, and it is not going all that well, as his countercharge against the human race is kind of dismissed. To make matters worse, Lady Dorma arrives to let Namor know that Krang is using Namor's absence to incite a rebellion in Atlantis. Given the circumstances, Namor wants to return home immediately, but that is denied. Combined with the fact that his court case is delayed, Namor hits a breaking point and breaks out of prison. Daredevil once again suits up with his upgraded billy club and seeks out Namor, asking the army to stave off their attack so he can try to talk with Namor. But things quickly come to blows between Daredevil and the Submariner in a fight that Daredevil is outmatched in. Despite Namor's strength and attempting to smash Daredevil with a light pole, the Man Without Fear makes a last-ditch effort to stop the Prince of the Deep. Using the exposed wires and his billy club's line, Daredevil tries to shock Namor into submission with electricity. This fails, and Daredevil ends up taking the charge on himself, rendering him nearly out for the count. He fails to stop Namor, however, Namor gains even more respect for his adversary and Daredevil's sheer courage, so he decides to stop the violence and just head home without a fight. Though his plight has momentarily been stopped, Namor vows to return to continue, claiming his people's place on the surface world. The next day, Matt is at the office when Karen and Foggy arrive, and despite losing a client, Foggy isn't all that sad to see Namor go. Karen, however, wonders just how Matt is able to alert her to a chair before she trips over it. Matt chalks it up to luck, and the curtain falls on Daredevil number 7. So, Matt goes from fighting Namor to fighting for Namor in court, and it goes just about as well as you'd expect. The charges against Namor are valid, only to an extent, as Matt points out, Namor is a visiting head of state from a place where his word is law. UN diplomats in the real world operate under diplomatic immunity. However, with an act of spying or act of out-and-out -out war, that immunity can be waived by the home country. 
Namor doesn't fall under that, but he's also not a U.S. citizen, so he's not necessarily subject to U.S. courts. Namor's moment of good behavior, and for Namor, this is top of his form, just sitting in the courtroom and not yelling imperious rex, has granted a bit of leniency. Too bad nobody told the prosecuting attorney who keeps goading Namor with no sense that this is a foreign dignitary. Yes, let us verbally provoke the Sea King who can deftly rip our head off. Please, get on that. The courtroom antics are thankfully short-lived, and we quickly learn that the Warlord Krang is scheming, which is a point that I will circle around to momentarily. It all comes down to round two of fisticuffs, as would be expected. This time, though, Daredevil knows more of what to expect, and he's armed with an upgraded billy club that now has the signature grapple line. Again, more on the club next week. But it doesn't play a huge role. Instead, Daredevil uses a nearby demolition site as a weapon in itself. He hits Namor with a wrecking ball. No, I'm not splicing that song in. And then knocks a wall over on him before dumping bricks on top of Namor. Points for using his noggin and his environment to his advantage. Daredevil came in with a plan and when that fails, he improvises. Now the plan portions work out just a little bit better because Daredevil takes on the brunt of the electric charge. He was betting on his gloves being insulated, which begs the question of just what exactly are his gloves made of. But if this is a live line, then it could be receiving up to 400 volts of electricity. Now to put that in perspective, a taser can run at about 50 volts. Now roughly, the numbers are variable. It's just a ballpark for comparison. We're dealing with a lot of voltage, a lot of amps. So sure, Daredevil gets knocked right on his ass, and Namor shakes it off like he's Keith Richards after a massive bender. This just doesn't add up to anything for him. Even after getting knocked down by this blast, our boy is feebly trying to stop Namor. He refuses to give up. In a way, this is a reversal from the last fight, because Matt's motivation is about trying to protect Namor and trying to get him through the legal system. Namor has proven himself to Matt, and Matt to Namor, and there's a nice feeling of mutual if uneasy and unspoken, respect. And that respect is what keeps Namor from crushing Daredevil's head like a peach. But that respect also leads Namor to fly over the city and leave peacefully instead of calling a giant sea creature to deal with the troops or something. And the issue ends with a standard Karen and Matt will-they-won't-they they bit and wondering if he might possibly be Daredevil, but that's crazy! As for Namor, his story picks up right where this leaves off in Tales to Astonish number 70 where he's on his way back to Atlantis. Submariner shares that book with the Hulk up to issue 101, and then moves on to his own series. So if you want to continue Namor, check out that series. There's one final bit in here. We get a bonus, a pin-up by Wood that shows Namor walking away from Daredevil, who is reaching for the Sea King from the ground. Look, it's not the best moment of Daredevil's career. I don't know that I would want something like that immortalized for all to see. So I could have done without this kind of pin-up. I'd prefer an action shot, but the final verdict on Daredevil number 7. It was a nice testing ground for Namor, a historically important character for the Marvel Universe who hadn't quite found a home yet. Namor had been making the guest star rounds, primarily as the antagonist for the Fantastic Four, but this issue really showed the richness of his potential, and I'm glad this was a springboard into his own starring strip. And I'm doubly relieved that Wally Wood gave us a solid costume change and one that really has stuck around up until today, with very little change. It is more distinctive, and removing the singlet portions makes Hornhead look sleeker 
And the upgrades to the Billy Club, well, some of them are really inspired, others we're going to talk about next week. But this is a fine standalone story. It's a bit repetitive. Namor and Daredevil fight twice and there's no resolution to the court portions of the tale. But one could read this and not only would it pique your curiosity for Daredevil, but it could very much make you want to learn more about Namor. It's a mid-level issue. The costume is a relevant addition, but overall, it's just an entertaining Daredevil versus insert name here story. And despite being outmatched, Daredevil holds his own and gains Namor's respect. Not too shabby for a 21-page story. But I'm going to close the book on it, and that does it for this round of Daredevil goodness. Next time, Daredevil faces one of his most underappreciated foes for the first time. Prepare for the debut of Stiltman in seven short days. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever things is near. There's devil fight for what is right. There's devil fight for you tonight. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. He must hide his sadness and fight the Tonight, they're there for fun.